It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, December 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a federal court has approved a plan to temporarily hire contractors to oversee Jackson's water system. Then, on the first day of HIV Awareness Month, we examine the landscape of HIV care and prevention in Mississippi. Plus, a lawyer for the ACLU of Mississippi recently authored a report on maternal care in the state. It doesn't look good for women, especially poor and working mothers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The U.S. Justice Department has received a federal judge's approval to carry out a plan to improve Jackson's troubled water system. The department filed the proposal Tuesday, and U.S. District Judge Henry Wingate approved it later that day. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the proposal is necessary to stabilize the circumstances in Jackson as soon as possible, while city, state, and federal officials negotiate a court-enforced consent decree. We realize how horrible the circumstances are there. It's hard to imagine not being able to turn on a tap and get safe drinking water. We are approaching this with the greatest possible urgency, and we believe our partners in this are doing so as well. So we will bring this to conclusion as soon as we possibly can. The water is a problem right now, and we can't wait until a complaint is resolved. So the first thing we want to do is get an interim order so that we can put in an interim manager and stabilize the circumstances. That's the purpose of the interim order. The purpose of the complaint is to allow us to negotiate or at least attempt to negotiate a consent decree, which will then be judicially enforceable. Now, as to the, uh, how it relates to environmental justice, uh, in May of this year, we issued a comprehensive strategy for environmental justice, part of which, the first part of which is to prioritize actions in cases of overburdened and underserved communities, and that's what we are doing with respect to Jackson. The move authorizes the appointment of a third-party manager to oversee reforms to Jackson's water system. Danielle Holmes is with the Poor People's Campaign and the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition. She shares her response to the order with our Kobe Vance. The most troubling thing to me um, that I see out of all of this order, um, and I'm, I'm very gracious, of the wording that has been used by DOJ, EPA, as well as the city of Jackson um, that uh, really clearly, you know, lays it out that this is temporary, 
um, this is not a permanent fix. However, having this manager in place, um, it kind of poses a problem with poor residents who are on a fixed income. And even uh, and if this manager decides to raise the rate of Jackson's water, right, what the, the impact would be uh, detrimental to those who are poor and low wealth in this community. And, and mainly speaking to those who are on a fixed income. I do know and understand that for years, Jackson has operated with antiquated uh, water and sewer rates, right? Um, it was years ago when we used to get $40, $60 water bills every three months. That was unheard of in other states across this country. But so we knew that there was a need in order for Jackson to, I knew uh, that if there was, that there was, a, there was a need for Jackson to really thrive and survive, that a lot of the antiquated billings and um, policies that they have on, on the books will really need to come up to par. But, however, we have to also understand that those rates really coincide with the wages that are being paid here, not only in the city of Jackson, um, but throughout the state of Mississippi, which is 725 minimum wage. And minimum wage has not been raised since in 13 years. So in one sense, yes, we were operating under antiquated water um, rate, water and sewer rate, which really ultimately has led us to Jackson to one of its largest deficits probably that it has ever faced. While we're but, on the topic of billing, I want to adjust slightly to people that are already struggling to pay their bills. There are residents in Jackson who have bills that are you know, have been outstanding for long periods of time and have not been able to pay them off. I know the city has been trying to find ways to forgive those bills over the past, and they brought mm-hmm. measures before the state legislature that were declined. Um, do you think that will be those – Right. Yes. We yes. I want to be very clear with that language because that that was a bipartisan bill that passed. The, yes, the vetoed House. by the governor. Absolutely. Yeah, and it was vetoed by the governor, and so that that really was withholding um, assistance. And I, it is my hopes through the civil rights um, investigation that's led by EPA that that will come up in the findings that the assistance that Jackson residents needed was denied by the governor when he um, vetoed that bill. On that note, though, I wanted to ask, do you think those residents are going to be at any kind of risk of having their water cut off once the billing process is taken over to this uh, third party? Well, firstly, so everything, so right now we're talking prematurely, right, As because we don't actually know. We, there, there is a meeting that's held on next week um, by the Department of Justice. Um, it's an invite only um, for for community members. Uh, so those questions we are going to raise, um, right, as a part of the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition and with the Poor People's Campaign, we're going to continue to push and fight and uh, against those rate changes. And even if the rate changes have to take place, you know, our argument would be that Jackson residents can afford significant rate changes at once, all at once, right? It would have to be something that gradually takes place over a period of time. 
what are your thoughts overall when it comes to just knowing that the city will be handing over operate or day-to-day operations of their water treatment plant? Again, I know the city's working for that long-term or looking for a long-term solution, but in this temporary, do you think this is going to be able to bring back some peace of mind for Jackson residents who are concerned about the what's coming out of their taps? Well, even with this third-party manager, right, um, we we understand that it would bring some, some kind of stability to the city as it relates to um, the operation of the water treatment facilities. However, the problem still remains, right? And so that third-party manager is not going to be able to come in and work miracles overnight or uh, over a course of years still without the funding that's necessary to repair Jackson's water sewer infrastructure. So we have to be very clear, you know, on that. This is something that has been put in place by DOJ um, as to what they want to see. Um, it still has to be signed off by, on, by a judge. However, if Jackson does not receive the funding that's necessary to repair its water sewer infrastructure, we will still face these same problems whether it's a third-party manager, a fourth-party manager, or no manager at all, right? So we have to be very clear and look at the overall picture. This is happening, but there are no funds coming in, right? There are no guaranteed funds of the $1.5 billion that Jackson says that it needs uh, to get started working on the infrastructure to build, rebuild the water sewer infrastructure. So... We just have a third-party manager, but we still don't have those necessary funds needed to build, rebuild Jackson's water, infant, water sewer infrastructure. Danielle Holmes is with the Poor People's Campaign and the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition. Danielle, thank you so much for talking with us today. All right. Have a great day. Coming up on the first day of HIV Awareness Month, we examine the landscape of HIV-AIDS care and prevention in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. December is HIV Awareness Month, and it's World AIDS Day today. In 2020, Mississippi reportedly had just under 10,000 people living with HIV. Those cases were disproportionately high in counties in the Delta. Dr. Ben Brock is a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. In part one of his conversation with MPB's Lacey Alexander, he breaks down the disparities and addresses the stigma still associated with the disease. There are a number of inequities that affect Mississippians worse than other parts of the country, but, you know, it's not unique to Mississippi. There are... uh, disparities in cases and um, those affect 
racial and ethnic minorities and sexual and gender minorities. What that means is that uh, particularly um, our African-American population is just disproportionately affected. Um, uh, for instance, black women have rates of HIV nine times higher than white women. Um, also, uh, minorities are disproportionately affected and the bulk of people who are infected with HIV even now are still men of six men and transgender women. Uh, certainly our healthcare landscape affects health outcomes of all types. You know, if you have diabetes or hypertension in Mississippi, you're also dealing with these same issues, but um, high rates of uninsured status, poverty, uh, you know, Medicaid non-expansion, being a largely rural state with lack of access to specialty care, often for uh, a lot of patients having to travel hours to get specialty care. Uh, so there are a whole bunch of obstacles in the way of a person who is HIV positive or who is at risk of HIV uh, to access screening prevention and treatment services. I would say, um, let me add to that, uh, just uh, recently, the Magnolia Clinic at Greenwood LaFleur closed, uh, which is another big impact. Uh, also, a shortage of infectious disease doctors across the state is another um, big impediment. So, Yeah, we've been doing a little bit of reporting on those medical closures and seeing multiple clinics and multiple entities close due to a lack of funding. We pulled up some stats earlier today, I think, from a website called AIDS View. And some of the counties that were most affected in the state were a lot of areas uh, in the Delta. Um, if there are, uh, if, you know, stats are correct, which I'm sure they are, and there are a lot of HIV patients in the Delta, where's the closest that they can get care now that these hospitals are closing? Yeah, and we already mentioned about the racial inequities. And if you follow the national map and the state maps for HIV cases, uh, the areas of the country and the areas in the states, the highest HIV rates are those also with um, the highest African-American population. So it's, it's a social justice issue um, and uh, lack of access to health, proper health care in the same locations is another social justice issue. Um, for patients who live in the Delta, there are several Ryan White funded clinics in the area, thankfully. Uh, but when you live in a rural area, even if there are several in the Delta, the Delta's large. And so, you know, the patients might have to drive an hour or more to be able to access care. There's a lot of discussion as well on websites and organizations that uh, specifically focus on HIV awareness or care, talking a lot about stigma. Um, can you kind of go into what that stigma is and what maybe those rumors are untrue um, opinions are on HIV? Yeah. So um, this is not unique to HIV, but it's definitely well described in HIV and um, other things that are infectious diseases like uh, COVID is an example where, um, especially early on in the COVID pandemic, people who contracted COVID would be stigmatized. But uh, there aren't a lot of conditions that are stigmatizing. I would say mental health is the other one that's uh, traditionally stigmatized. Um, so people with HIV can be stigmatized for being HIV positive. Um, we know of patients who are mistreated by family and friends or in their communities for being HIV positive. 
that causes them to either hide their diagnosis or even worse, not even come for care for fear of um, being outed as HIV positive and would, uh, and they choose to um, not seek care because of that. So it's a, it's an impediment to that. It's also an impediment to HIV screening and prevention. You know, HIV is preventable now and, um, and the same stigma can impact uh, people seeking prevention services or screening. Uh, likewise, as we mentioned, people who are um, sexual and gender minorities, uh, particularly men of sex with men and transgender women, are disproportionately affected by HIV. And uh, being a sexual gender minority in Mississippi is likewise stigmatizing. And so, um, unfortunately, it's a it's just another social justice issue where uh, sexual and gender minorities are mistreated uh, in Mississippi or or the population's outwardly hostile to them. Dr. Ben Brock with our Lacey Alexander in part two of their conversation. Mississippi still is a Medicaid non-expansion state. We have high rates of uninsured status. It's a largely rural area where patients have to travel for hours to come for um, specialty care. HIV treatment, prevention, and barriers to care. That's tomorrow. Coming up, a recently maternal care report in the state doesn't look good for women, especially poor and working mothers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new ACLU report in Mississippi found out that the state's reproductive care systems have been failing women and mothers for decades. The Gulf States Newsroom's Maya Miller talked with Vera Lyons, a lawyer with the ACLU of Mississippi. She's the lead researcher on this report and recently moved back to the state after working in New York for years. You went to law school in D.C. and you practiced law in New York. Why did you decide to come back to Mississippi? I'm from Mississippi originally, and I had planned on moving to London with a firm that I was working for. Um, That ended up falling through, and I had done the New York thing for six years, and I started looking around at jobs here, and it, it kind of surprised me. I'm definitely one of those millennials who is part of the brain drain where you go to college, you get a graduate degree, and then you just kind of leave Mississippi behind. And I wasn't really a big Southern belle growing up, and I wasn't really sure I wanted to come back to that culture. But when I came back, you know, after leaving at 16, um, now returning to my 30s, I met a lot of progressive, interesting people who are really bent on making Mississippi and Jackson in particular a better place. And I found that a lot of the difficulties, you know, fitting in culturally 
that I had as a teenager and in my childhood, um, things have actually gotten a lot better. Um, and I found more of a community here, and I realized that this is what I want to work towards. I want to work towards making Mississippi a better place because I'm seeing spots of it in the community and people doing this work and succeeding, and I wanted to be a part of that. Tell me a little bit about the process of you starting this policy paper. What was it like diving into the research and looking at maternal data across the state? So when I took the ACLU position, I did a lot of reading, a lot of research about um, the legal scholarship behind Roe v. Wade, what led up to it, the cases that led after it, and followed the Dobbs decision really heavily. And once the once the arguments were heard and seeing how the court was stacked, um, I kind of had a premonition as to how Dobbs was going to turn out. I don't think we could be prepared for how devastating it has been. But when I heard that Lieutenant Governor Hoseman and State Senator Nicole Boyd wanted to do a committee on women and children, I knew that we needed information out there about how dire the situation is in Mississippi. And, you know, as as much as I appreciate Lieutenant Governor Hoseman's um, deputy chief of staff calling me to talk about the committee, it concerned me that they were adamant they were not going to talk about the abortion exceptions. They thought it was too political. And I had a long conversation with her about that. And I think that's really, you can't avoid it. I think the ability to get an abortion to decide when and if you want to become pregnant is inextricably linked to the health of women and children in our state. And I think avoiding it is putting your head in the sand. So while looking at trends in the data and getting all of this information together, what is some of the more interesting things that stood out to you as far as maternal care in the state? something that really stuck out for me is I was talking to an OBGYN in Jackson, and she told me that what a lot of these lawmakers don't understand is that being pregnant is an inherent medical risk. I think that sometimes pregnancy is portrayed as this beautiful feminine thing, and while it, it can be that, it it puts a lot of stress on someone's body. And I think a lot of these lawmakers don't understand that, that when you're forcing somebody to go through with an unwanted pregnancy or maybe even carrying an unviable fetus to term, you're putting their life at risk. In your report, you talk about reproductive justice, you talk about maternal mortality, but you also make it a point to mention teen pregnancy. Why do you think it's important to talk about teenagers and teen pregnancy when talking about maternal mortality and reproductive health care in the state? Having grown up in Mississippi, I I didn't go to a public school. I went to a private school. So they were kind of free to do what they wanted to do in terms of sex education. But even then, I don't remember really getting a comprehensive sex education. You grow up in this culture of um, evangelical beliefs where, you know, you're not we don't talk about sex before marriage. And I think that's really detrimental. I feel that we really fail to prevent people from getting pregnant in the first place. And then once they get pregnant, we don't offer them many options. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about reproductive justice and maternal care in Mississippi? 
I think that politicians have to start putting their money where their mouth is. I think we can't keep saying that we're not going to expand Medicaid when 60% of births in Mississippi are covered by Medicaid. We are actively choosing not to support life when we are not putting funds into supporting these um, pregnancies. And we can't use crisis pregnancy centers to fix a problem that is largely medical and also uh, financial in terms of people having access to resources and childcare. And I, I think we have to start getting realistic and we can't skirt around the topic of abortion because it's, quote, too political, because having equitable access to abortion care is what makes women healthier. Well, Vera, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That was Gulf States newsroom reporter Maya Miller talking to ACL lawyer Vera Lyons, the leading researcher on a new report about the state of reproductive care in Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.